I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. A lot of people ask what it's like to make this podcast. Do we just cry all the time, buy Kleenex in bulk at Costco? Do we get to bring our shih tzus to work? What's the mood like? You're just dealing with tough stuff all day long. Well, I'll tell you, we do not bring our shih tzus to work because they are dogs of leisure. Only leisure, as they would probably say it. And I don't know, aside from a significant lack of snacks in this studio and the fact that we don't have desks, uh, making this podcast is great. It really is. And I think it would actually surprise people how much our team laughs. Like, we just have a lot of fun. We have such a good team. Most of them are really, really funny, not naming names. There's always a dud in every group. So not going to say who, but you know who you are. But we all do love to laugh. And we do it all the time. And sometimes these jokes are just little you know, little things that sort of build on each other for years and take on a life of their own. And they wouldn't interest anybody, but it would definitely make Hans laugh if I said, hey, should I get a plate of nachos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you get it. You don't get it. That's the point. It's an inside joke. Then there are things that aren't even jokes. They're just things that happen, like this natural thing that happens when people who like each other hang out a lot and work on something. So the other day, we're in the studio, me, Hans, Marcel, we're all working on a script together, and I don't even know how it happened. One of us started um, mumbling the first few words of the chorus of this song, God Bless the USA. I didn't even know what it was called, okay? You know that song. If you are an American, have been to America, and or have been to a sporting event in or around America. Look, okay. <clears throat> I don't even know what things. It's definitely like an, an, an older man. <laughs> and I'm proud to be an American. One of us said that, and then 90% of the American listeners listening to this just finished the song, which is also exactly what our whole team did. Standing in that studio at the top of our lungs, we just went for it. I'm proud to be an American. You say we're at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me. And I'll gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. land. God bless the USA. Woo! Play ball. Sports. That's right. I can talk and sing double threat. So I don't know who you are, what you believe politically, but if you are an American adjacent you probably know that song. So that's our weird little team belting it out at the top of our lungs in a soundproof room on a Tuesday. Somehow, we all knew that song, even though none of us knew who sang it or what the name was. I thought the title was Proud to be an American. False. Point being, we all somehow knew those lyrics, just like we all know what those largely meaningless words all add up to is 
It's a sense that being an American is something you just know when you see it. Like a bald eagle. Old glory. Fourth of July. Apple pie. Bald eagle. Baseball. Landing on the moon. Walking on the moon. Not a hoax. Mount Rushmore. Bald eagle. Reality TV. Shark Week. Saved by the bell. Pickup trucks. Pickup trucks with testicles hanging off of them. The ability to buy everything you could ever want in bulk, on the internet, or preferably at Costco. G.I. Joe, Darkwing Duck, DuckTales, Tailspin. Now I'm just naming cartoons with ducks in them. Okay, uh, other American things. Hot dogs. What else? Uh, Family. An American family. An American heteronormative nuclear family. With a breadwinning dad. I've never met a man who's worked nearly as hard as he has. And I know everybody says this about, let's say, the, the figures that they value. But with my dad, it's a, it's a different story. He's shown me what a calm head and a, and a free, open heart can, can get you. He's like a super funny, charming person. Um, he has a huge laugh. My dad is like the kind of person who will make the same joke for like 20 years. What are your dad's favorite jokes? <laughs> well, like he does these really cheesy like rhyming things. Like um, when I was a little kid, if I was in a bad mood, he'd be like, don't be sad. You should be glad you have dad. And oh my gosh, I'm like cringing remembering this right now. But um, yeah, my dad is like peak dad joke central. He's just a really funny, charming person. I think my dad is like everyone's favorite person to hang out with. There's the nurturing mom. She's always there, especially in the bad moments. She'll never give up. She'll put on a stone face and drag us by the ears through the storm if she has to. Three wholesome kids, two boys, one girl. So I have an older brother and a younger brother. And I think with three siblings, there's always kind of that dynamic of it always ends up being two against one somehow. She's always had the softest heart. She's always been extremely loving, very sensitive, very outgoing. She's shown none of the nervousness that characterized me when I was a kid. I felt like sometimes I had to kind of be like the mature one. And like if there were two pieces of candy, I'd be like, fine, you guys can just have them. Like kind of give up that little fun thing so that they would stop whining, basically. And this American family, they live in what the coastal elites would call flyover country, but real Americans know is God's country. Rust Belt, salt of the earth, American town. I could take you on a trip in Akron, Ohio and get you everywhere we used to go when we were kids. We kind of had this little neighborhood gang of um, all of the kids, and it was just kind of like you go outside and it's like, hey, there's someone else outside, and eventually everyone would kind of congregate. I remember the sights, I remember the gray skies. I remember the two-foot-high snow. Uh, I remember every place we lived. It was was something special. And in that special American town is a real American store. It was a little place in the university district in Akron, Ohio, right in the middle of the city. A corner store had uh, everything you needed 
for an unhealthy diet. Wonder Bread, chips, and soda. Wonderful. It was my home away from home. And in the back of that American store is an American office. It was a bit of a bunker. This is, let's say, six by five metal cube with enough space for a table and one of these old uh, foam folding couch mattresses. And that used to be our, our hideaway spot. Listen to CDs or play with my Game Boy when I didn't feel like uh, hanging out in the front of the store. Used to run back there. There were surveillance cameras, I believe. And we would gossip about the people coming in. Eat our quesadillas that we got from Taco Bell. It was our little home base. I can't imagine anything better. And one day, into that American supply room walk three of our characters. The working dad, the 17-year-old brother, and the 16-year-old sister. You know, my dad called my brother and I in there, and he said, like, hey, you know, um, your older brother is going to be applying to colleges soon, and so this is something that we needed to talk with you about, but essentially our family has had a complicated history as far as being legal in this country. And I kind of just froze. I didn't know what the heck that meant. I had no concept. You know, my dad, my mom, and my older brother, who were all undocumented, it wasn't like it is today where we're hearing about immigration and undocumented immigrants every single day on the news. I had no idea what that was. I was 16 years old. And and he said that he didn't tell us because he didn't want us to ever feel different from the other kids growing up. You know, he didn't ever want us to feel uncomfortable or like we were less than or that, you know, our family was weird or different or didn't belong. All I remember is not understanding enough to be devastated. When he told us that, of course, you get worried. You start wondering what your life is built upon. But I I didn't know at that time that the risk was real. Here's the thing about symbols. Sometimes they're not what you think they are. Like that bald eagle. Okay, I got some hard truth for you. That sound that we all think is a bald eagle. It's really a red-tailed hawk. A real bird of prey. A real tough guy. A real bird's bird. You want to know what a bald eagle really sounds like? It sounds like a weak little baby. Look, sometimes, maybe even most times, our symbols are a fabrication designed to make us feel something, when the reality is actually a weird, sort of giggling scavenger. The concept of somebody telling me that my identity would be taken away. Not taken away, but wasn't valid. It wasn't real enough for me to to absorb it at the time.
We'll be right back. We're back, and it's time to do a proper introduction to our American family. You've met Syed. He's the big brother, the one who is undocumented. And also, what would you like uh, us to call you in this episode? Would you like to be Mark? Would you like to be Syed? I like Syed. Okay, Syed. That's a a beautiful name. I'm growing into it these days. Uh, I didn't make that up. By the way, I didn't just offer to call him Mark. For a while, he went by Mark. You've met Saida, the middle sister. She's a U.S. citizen. She was born here. Yeah, Hassan. Hassan. Yeah, Saida Hassan. Uh The other person in the back room of the store was their dad, who is also Syed, but we're just going to call him dad, okay? Say something, dad. Introduce yourself. Uh, How do I introduce myself? Say, hi, my name is... Hi, my name is Syed. In 1990, dad was in Karachi, Pakistan. Pakistan... Uh, was has always been is, is still today politically also economically or very destabilized country at that time the political situation was very complicated dad was newly married and he and mom had a little baby boy named Syed Syed was just a few months old there was sounds of gunfire and uh, I'm holding this baby in my hand and uh, there's no way I can leave the house. I'm in the apartment building. It's like I'm surrounded. I'm in a, in a war zone. And I'm debating, you know, not for my life, but for his life. You know, it, what do I do? You know, if I put this kid in the car and suddenly, you know, there's an ambush or something, what would I do then? Uh, that was the turning point, actually. I said, to hell with all this, you know, I'm out of here. Dad brought his new family, Mom and Syed, to Los Angeles. Saida was born shortly after that. And several years later, their youngest brother was born. The family eventually moved to Akron for their all-American upbringing in that all-American store. And after that... Mom and the kids moved to Houston, and Dad stayed in Akron to take care of the store and earn money for the family. The rest of them would all fly up to visit him on summer vacations. Mom and Dad were still married and in love, but it was just one of those things that a family has to do sometimes. They lived like this for years, Dad holding down the store and supporting the family financially, Mom taking care of the kids and keeping life on track down in Houston. But this summer... While they're in Akron, there's a plan. Part of keeping their life on track is heading to Cleveland, to the federal building, to do interviews to get green cards for mom, dad, and Syed. I remember sitting in that very same bunker, uh, writing a handwritten letter. It was a very weird idea for me, write down why you should stay, write down why your life shouldn't be destroyed. And I wrote it down. I said, I I have friends, I have my cousins, we play PlayStation, and I'm an American. So when we went to the federal building, that letter that my mom had put in her folder, uh, it gave me a lot of confidence. I said, anybody who reads this, how could they tell me that I'm not 
allowed to stay here. It's ridiculous. But I went into that federal building with, with the nervousness that one could expect, but a lot of confidence that me being kicked out was impossible. It wasn't even on the table. Not worth thinking about. Mom and dad are confident this is basically paperwork, formalities. And if mom and dad aren't freaking out, nobody should. What I understood, it was like, okay, this is weird and scary and I don't really understand it, but it should all be over soon. The three undocumented family members, mom, dad, Syed, head into their interviews. My little brother and I were sitting in the lobby um, while my parents and my brother were inside the room, like having these interviews with these immigration officials. Syed is taken into a small office where he has a one-on-one interview with an immigration official. Syed is a teenager whose ideal afternoon is sitting in the back of his dad's corner store eating Taco Bell with his sister. He's an American. But of course he's nervous. He's a kid. But seeing him there and being Latino American, I said, okay, I mean, he's going to understand. If nobody else does, he's going to understand. And that conversation was a reflection of how I was feeling at the time which was, hey, man, what is this? You know, let's stop this ridiculous uh, process. Simple, right? Just a face-to-face talk with another human. There's bureaucracy, sure, but when it comes down to it, this is just two people having a talk. And I remember the question that he had for me was, why should you be, able, why should you be allowed, rather, to stay in the, in the United States? And that struck me as very, very odd. And that was the sort of pivotal moment that planted that seed of doubt in my head that, wow, maybe you're not who you think you are. I was just kind of in the lobby, like trying to entertain my little brother, trying to keep him busy. And eventually when they came out, my dad just had like a really solemn look on his face and told us that it didn't go well. When I saw the look in my parents' faces afterwards, these parents that I mentioned were absolute rocks. When I saw the first flicker of doubt in their faces, then I, I got scared. I never really saw my dad, like, kind of break down or, um, it just, I think he always put on a brave face for his family. But on that drive back, he actually, like, broke down and started crying while he was, like, driving us down the highway. And I just kind of panicked internally. You know, I was just kind of looking around at my brothers, like, uh, what do we do here? Like, you know, I never see my dad like this. And It kind of started to sink in the gravity of the situation um, that, okay, we are kind of in uncharted territory here. I don't know what's going on. It was probably, you know, just like the greatest feeling of uncertainty I've ever felt in my life. It was just kind of, it was just, it was just scary. It's scary, especially because there's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can go to the appointment you set up, you can fill out the forms, you can hope that your own humanity lasers through all that red tape and is felt by another human who can pull the right lever to grant you the right thing. But really, really, what can you do? The family's lawyer recommends writing letters. 
letters that will be submitted with the rest of their paperwork, letters about why it's so important to let them stay and what would happen to their family if they weren't allowed to. I've always loved writing. And so I just kind of thought like, oh, you know, okay, this is my chance. I have to do a really good job at writing this letter, but I'm going to explain all of this and they're going to understand. Like, obviously, my life would be torn apart. My whole world would be turned upside down if he were gone. I mean, I don't know what I would do. I wouldn't have I, I just I don't know what I would do. You're hopeful. You write your little heart out. You send off a letter and you're like, obviously, this is going to work. I would feel so <laughs> confident. Someone asked me to write a letter when I'm 16. I'm like, I got this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I might have. I probably would use like a gel pen. Uh, like, oh, man. I to, to be honest with you, there, there's a high chance I used a gel. pen. There's for a that high letter. chance that there's a gel <laughs> pen involved in this. And and uh, and I probably would have signed it with like a big heart <laughs> and like over my name, which oh, there's yeah. not even a need for that. Like that, that you can't even dot. There's no I to dot with a heart in my name, but I would have done it. So what is your what is the family dynamic now? I think that we were just all kind of waiting, you know, looking for some sort of sign and just kind of anxiously waiting and hoping that it would all be resolved. And that's it. A few letters written maybe in gel pen or maybe on a computer addressed to whom it may concern. And that's it. That's the whole plan. Their fates are at the mercy of someone else, a group of someone else's, a big, faceless, nameless, bureaucratic group of someone's. And then they just wait. How long will they have to wait? They don't know. So waiting is really just living. Dad goes back to Akron, back to the store. The kids go back to Houston with mom. School starts back up. School happens. School ends. They stand at the edge of this cliff for nearly a year without an update. It's summer again. Saida and Syed and the family are in Houston. Their dad is in Ohio in his apartment getting ready for work one day. And uh, it's early in the morning. It could have been like maybe 6.30 or whatever. I'm, I was shaving and I had to take a shower after that. Uh, and all of a sudden I heard this bang. So at, at first I thought it was some other apartment. Maybe somebody is knocking at the door. So I kind of ignored it. But it was thunderous, loud sound on the door. So I got concerned, and then I heard the police, and I'm like, what the hell is police doing here? I was still sh- shaving, I had, was not done. And uh, I opened the door, and the guys just invited themselves in. They showed me a badge, and they walked in, and next thing, they, they asked me for my name and stuff, and they said, well, you are under arrest. They just told me everything verbally. There was no no paperwork or anything. They did not show me anything. They did not ask that uh, whether I wanted to see anything. They just said that I have to come with them. Dad was taken to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services office, where he went through a bunch of paperwork, processing. Uh, They did allow me to contact... uh, somebody and you know make phone calls while I was in the car so I called uh, uh, my sister-in-law and I told her that uh, immigration has picked me up. Back down in Houston it's also dawning as a beautiful sunny day hot. 
It's the middle of summer, so the teenagers are up early, making the most of their day, getting that early bird worm. No, they're asleep. It's summer. I woke up out of my sleep because I I heard my mom downstairs and it just sounded like she was kind of yelling or crying. I just I felt like something was wrong. And so I got up out of bed and um, I went down the stairs and I was like kind of standing at the foot of the stairs and my mom was um, holding the handset to the house phone. And I just remember saying like, mom, what happened? And, um, you know, she just looked at me and she said, the immigration people came and they took your dad. And I just remember like sitting down on the stairs. I just froze. The biggest moments of your life, especially when you share them with your siblings, are still subject to your own memories. Saida remembers being woken up to this news. And Syed remembers a moment when the family has gathered at an uncle's house, when they know at this point that dad is going to jail. The immediate reaction was to get up, uh, look at my closest uncle, and tell him, uh, when do we leave? And this was one of the most powerful moments in my life because... A teenager, you know, hot-blooded teenager gets up and says, you know, we're we're leaving right now. We're driving across the country to go see him. And my uncle, God bless him, he got up and he said, yeah, uh, in the morning. We're getting in your car and we're, we're driving up. And I remember leaving the house and, and not thinking of anything other than, uh, I wonder how many T-shirts I got to take with me. We ran home, I packed my suitcase, slept a little bit, I believe, and we left early the next morning. The two of them drive straight through, about 25 hours with stops, and they arrive in Akron. We drove up there, we parked at at the house that my dad was staying at, and, and we got in and my dad wasn't there. And I remember thinking, it smells like my dad. The apartment smells like my dad. Which was horrible. And the, the icing on the cake was that I was still 17 at the time. So when we, when we drove up to Cleveland the next day to, to see my dad, I wasn't allowed in uh, to, to visit because I wasn't 18. So that happened. I mean, we used to go up every couple of days to, to see my dad, to talk to him. And... And I would stay outside, and I remember finding a bottle of car polish, and I would polish the car every single time, looking at the building where my dad was, knowing that I couldn't go in and see him. I think I did that every couple of days. I'd polish my 95 Toyota Camry. My uncle would go in, talk to my dad, come out, tell me everything was fine. Until my 18th birthday, which I celebrated by going in and seeing my dad. Never going to forget that in my life. What was it like seeing your dad? I remember thinking orange is not your color in a lot of ways. The fact that you can put the hardest working man that I know, the most loving and openly loving man, which is not an easy thing to be, 
the fact that you can put him behind bulletproof glass because he's a danger to somebody, he's not a danger to anybody. He's the best of the best, and he's behind a bulletproof panel. I, I didn't understand it. Honestly, I didn't understand it. Now I do. What do you understand now? That, and I, and I, and I mean it when I say I understand it. I, I hold no grudges. That humanity is a very hard thing to consider when you're talking about policies on a high level. Individual humanity often has no, no role to play. Hmm. What were your conversations with your dad like? Um, I, I tried not to cry. I think I succeeded. And I remember asking him time and time again, what is Pakistan like? Because at that time I knew I was going back. And it was a shock to the system because my dad would always try to make our lives as easy as possible. Make us as happy as possible. But he couldn't give me a happy answer for that one. He couldn't give me something to smile about uh, on, that, on that topic. So I was worried. We'll be right back. We're back. Syed has left dad in Akron and is back in Houston. The rest of his family is there just waiting for news, waiting for the next development in their immigration status. It's been two months since Dad was detained. I remember I went to go pick up the mail with my mother, and we saw two, two envelopes, one with her name, one with mine. I remember opening it up in the car, and it was a very politely worded letter saying, uh, please leave of your own accord. I don't believe it set a specific date. Uh, Please leave or you will be forced to leave. I remember asking her, hey, how serious is this? And she was very strong. Gotta admire the woman. Very strong. She told me, yep, this is it. Uh, we're, We're going. How did you feel about that based on your conversations with your dad? Destroyed. 
destroyed. Absolutely, like my foundations were were ripped out from underneath me in a heartbeat. Which they were. They they really were. One of the worst feelings of my life. Syed and Mom knew, yeah, yes, they'd have to return to Pakistan. They'd have to leave their homes, their friends, their jobs, their futures. They'd have to leave the last 18 years of their lives behind and never come back. They is the operative word here because they means Syed and Mom. Saida and baby brother are citizens, but who's going to leave a teenager and a little kid in another country. Not mom. You know, at that time, I was finishing up high school, and so she basically told me that once I was done with high school, that I would go to Pakistan and join them. And I obviously didn't want to do that. Um, and, and I'm a, a citizen. I was born here, so I didn't have to do that. But I felt really conflicted because I felt like I was being a bad person. Like I felt like I was being selfish by wanting to stay here because I knew that my mom really wanted me to go. Um, and I knew why. And I knew everything that we had all gone through. And I wanted to tell my dad, like, hey, dad, I really don't want to move to Pakistan. I really want to stay here. And I want to apply to UT. That's like my dream school. But I could never have those conversations with him because my mom was always right there, like right over my shoulder. That conflict between wanting to stay in the U.S. and go to college and continue the life she'd been living since the day she was born and going with her family, her parents, to a country she's never known. Saida keeps that inside. She's afraid of hurting her mom's feelings. She's afraid of making the wrong choice. I'm in in the detention. I cannot even touch you. You're on the other side of the window. As sensitive as I am, I'm thinking 24-7, nothing but about my children. And I'm like, okay, so what do I do? What are my options? Okay, so I decide to myself, I said, I will let Rabab stay here because she's the only one who can actually stay here. Still very young, but she is right at that point where she has to go to college. She has an opportunity even though she's very young, very inexperienced, but it's a better choice than to take her with me and put her in a situation that even I cannot foresee. I don't know what is in Pakistan anymore because it's been such a long time that I was totally disconnected. Eventually, Dad was transferred to a facility in Louisiana. It was close enough to Houston that Saida could drive there to visit. And that's where Saida gets to see Dad in person for the first time since he was detained. Just the two of them. It was so crazy because I was 17. I had all the stuff on my heart that I wanted to say about wanting to stay here and how much I loved them and I didn't want to hurt my mom or my dad, but I just, I really didn't want to leave. And um, and it was one of the first things my dad said to me was, hey, I want you to stay here. I don't want you to move to Pakistan. I want you to apply to UT Austin, and I want you to go to school there. And I was so relieved. I didn't even have to say anything. He just got it. 
Dad gets it. But Mom still doesn't know. Mom still thinks that Saida is going to follow the plan. And the plan is this. Once Dad is deported, Mom and both brothers will go to Pakistan. Saida will stay in Texas and live with her aunt and uncle and finish high school and join the rest of the family in Pakistan after she gets that high school diploma. But Saida makes other plans. Secretly, she fills out the application for University of Texas at Austin. In November, Dad is deported. A month later, it's time for Mom, Syed, and baby brother to, quote-unquote, voluntarily leave the country. They buy one-way tickets. They pack. And then it's time. It's December 24th. Christmas Eve. The family was with us, not just my sister, but but my cousins and my aunts and uncles. Everybody came out to drop them off to the airport. You know, just remember hugging them and saying bye and um, watching them go through security. And then... At the end of everything, I, I collected some trays I saw lying around on the, on the conveyor belt. And, and I put them together and I just sort of shoved them to the side. And the gentleman who was this middle-aged white gentleman, a Texan, and he looked at me and I remember distinctly he told me, son, I should offer you a job. And I looked at him and I was like, sir, if that's, if that's a real possibility, right now you're about to turn my life around. But that kind of set the stage for my growth because... I realized that when you're, when you're as down low as you could possibly be, because I was leaving my, my family forever, you know, and yet here's this uh, seemingly insignificant shining star of, of just positivity. A gentleman being a gentleman, that's it. And it, I think it gave me some, some bravery in the moment. I said, okay, there's, there's good in the worst situations. You'll be, you'll be okay. You know, I was just watching them and watching them, and then they got on this escalator, um, and we were all just, like, waving goodbye to each other. And then um, just remember, like, a, just crying. And um, one of my cousins, like, um, just put his arm around me, and, um, you know... Uh, I just, I didn't say anything, you know, I just, um, I was just kind of there. Um, and, uh, yeah. So at a certain point I just couldn't see them anymore. And I think that's when it really just kind of hit me that of just how big of a life change this was and that I was alone now. Um, I was envious of everything and everybody that got to stay a minute longer than I did in the United States. (laughs) With all my heart. I knew that in a way I was lucky that due to this totally arbitrary fact of me being born here, like a couple of months later, I was allowed to stay and he had to go. But I was heartbroken at the time. I was truly heartbroken. Saida leaves the airport 
and heads back to her aunt and uncle's house. She has about six months until high school graduation. Six months until her mother expects her to board a plane and head to Pakistan. And halfway around the world, the rest of the family lands in Karachi. Syed is seeing the country for the first time since he was around two years old. I distinctly remember everything being brown. Like if you watch Breaking Bad, everything seems a little bit brown-tinted. Waiting for them at the airport is Dad. The first question I asked my dad when we left the airport, which is a relatively modern place, it's not some slum or anything, it's, it's fine. I remember being so shocked by that that I asked my dad, hey dad, um, how long do I have to stay here? And he, he turned to me, what, what do you answer? He, he asked me, how long do you want to stay here? And I remember taking it so casually and saying, ah, a couple months, if that. Syed had this feeling he didn't belong, and of course he didn't. His childhood took place in Akron, Ohio, in Houston, Texas. Karachi isn't just far away geographically. It's just different in every way. Karachi is chaos. Karachi is, is wonderful. Karachi is disgusting. Karachi is, is sad, happy, alive. Karachi is everything. Everything you can expect when you put 24 million people in a small place together. I've had some of the best experiences you could ever imagine in Karachi. I've had some of the worst. It's the most dynamic, contradictory place, culture, life that you can ever imagine. I was riding the bus uh, and they have open doors. And I'm sitting down, and all of a sudden, a gentleman throws uh, a goat into the bus, lands at my feet, very much alive. And the goat just stands up, stares at me, and is hanging out. The gentleman climbs on, and the whole bus just starts talking to him. Hey, how much did you pay for the goat? Where'd you get it? What's its name? And we conversed about (laughs) this nonsense, as happy as you can imagine. Until I got off. And let's say the next week or the next month or the next year, from that same bus stop, I, I was walking past and I saw a gentleman get shot next to me. A drive-by shooting. The guy was maybe 10 feet away. It's, it's a world of contradictions. And it doesn't let you settle down. But back in the U.S., Saida is settled. Her acceptance letter for UT Austin, her dream school, arrives. And she still hasn't told her mother. But she doesn't have to. Her dad does it for her. He takes mom out to dinner and breaks the news. So all Saida has to do is pick up the phone after that dinner and call. Her concern was she was like, what are people going to say? They're going to say that we left our only daughter behind in America, um, you know, and that we just moved here and we just like left you there. And what are they going to think and all that? And I just said, Mom, like, I don't care what people are going to think or what they're going to say. Like, we're doing what's best for our family and I'm doing what's best for my future. And we have to just be strong in that. You know, we've we've been through so much and this is just what I have to do in my life right now. 
Saida did not buy that one-way ticket to Pakistan. She went to UT Austin. She had her American college experience. She got her degree. I'm an American kid. I've grown up here my whole entire life. And it, but at the same time, like, I'm totally alone here. So, like, is this really worth it? Is it a wise decision? Like, it's just kind of that feeling of, you know, ultimately, where is home for you? Do you really 100 percent belong anywhere? You know, you always kind of feel like caught in between these different worlds. Syed, too, is caught between these different worlds. In the years since he boarded that plane to Pakistan, he's never been back to the U.S. He doesn't know if he ever will. He spent six years in Karachi, an American in a foreign land that was also his birthplace. He got his degree in engineering. He moved to Germany. And that's where he is when he and I speak. That nuclear family from the beginning, those Americans we met, they haven't been all together in the same room for nine years. And they don't know when they will. They talk often. Skype and FaceTime, all those modern apps, help bridge the vast distances between all of them. One of the characteristics I have is that, truly, now, there's no place in the world where I would feel uncomfortable. That I would not see as a possibility, at the very least. That's one of the beautiful things that... that have resulted from this from this whole thing. It's like being uprooted like that. Now you know, like, you can root yourself anywhere. Or that you don't even have to root yourself. That's the beauty of it. I know it seems a bit counterintuitive because it's, it's always been a desire for me uh, to root myself somewhere and just say, you know what, this is my place. So, where is home? Is it just a symbol, like the cry of an eagle slash hawk? Is home just a magic trick to evoke a feeling? Maybe. For the Hassan family on three different continents, three different countries, with three different governments, with different rules on who can say they belong, who can stay, who has to go, home has been Los Angeles, where they first moved. It's been Akron, Ohio, whose streets Syed could still navigate from memory. It's been Houston, Texas, where Syed and Saida crossed the stage at graduation and got their high school diplomas. It's Karachi, the place they fled from and returned to. It's Munich, where Syed is building a life now. It's Dallas, where Saida is now. And often, in that conversation about who belongs and who doesn't, as Syed noticed when he was just 18, there's no place for humanity or the consideration of an individual's humanity when you're talking about policy. But there's also no way to not consider that humanity when you're speaking directly with a person. When you're really confronted with a human being, loving and hurting and trying to live a life across any distance. And that conversation, it's always about home. It's always about family. It's always, always human. I love my family 
more than I ever have. So I suppose from my side, my family is stronger than it's ever been. Because I have no better way of defining it. People ask you, where are you from? And I seem to be the only one without an answer to that question. And I want to keep it that way at a certain point. Because I find beauty in it. I find freedom in it. My roots are, are my relationships. I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Our associate producer is Marcel Malikibu. Got that promotion. Good job. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon helps us out with all kinds of things. Anna Weggle, great teammate. Megan Palmer is our intern. Katie O'Rourke helped us on this episode, and we thank her deeply. Sincerely, from the bottom of our hearts. You can find me on the internet at noraborealis.com, and I'm on social media as Nora Borealis on Instagram. It's probably the best place to follow me. I hate Twitter. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. Go to his website. He's amazing. And we are a production of American Public Media. 